Exploring the intersection of liberty and character. Welcome to the Reed Hour with Lawrence W. Reed. Welcome, everyone, to the Loving Liberty Network. This is Lawrence Reed, the host of the Read Hour, and we are about to begin this week's edition of the Read Hour. My producer, Brian Hyde, is with me, and as is our custom, we're going to start talking first about a hero that I've chosen for the week, and that hero is Mercy Otis Warren. Conscience of Great Causes. Hey, Brian, how you doing? I'm doing quite well, and I'm very happy to see that uh, this is the hero you've chosen for this week. I was telling you off the air, someone brought this name up in conversation just a few weeks ago and said, well, of course, you know about uh, Mercy, uh, Mercy uh, Otis O'Warren. And I stood there with this look on my face like I was a brook trout going, uh, phew, actually, <laughs> I don't know. So you're going to fill in some blanks for us, I guess. Okay, I'd be happy to. And that is probably not an uncommon reaction uh, when her name comes up today. Unfortunately, she's sort of a forgotten hero of the American War for Independence. Uh, But she was a pivotal figure uh, two centuries before the so-called women's lib uh, movement uh, in the years before the American Revolutionary War. Mercy Otis Warren was already a liberated woman by the standards of her day, and she did the liberating herself. She was an accomplished poet, a playwright, a pamphleteer, a historian. Uh, Much of what she had to write, or or did write, I should say, uh, was anonymous. uh, And it had to be because uh, she was trying to get a hearing uh, where a woman in those days might not otherwise be listened to. And she risked uh, reprisal uh, from King George III back in Britain and the British troops uh, that were in America because she engaged in subversive rhetoric in favor of American liberty and independence. So she was a very uh, important figure, well-known at the time. She was a close friend and confidant to almost all of the major figures of the American Revolution. Uh, The Adamses, John and Abigail, as well as Samuel, uh, the Washingtons, George and Martha, Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, you name it. Uh, She knew them and they knew her. So where did she get the the nickname or the description, the conscience of the revolution? Well, you'll you'll recall from your history, Brian, that uh, uh, it's commonly noted that on the eve of the American Revolution in 1776, maybe as many as a third of the American uh, people did not favor independence. Another third, it's often said, were sort of neutral, and uh, uh, only one-third was in favor of whatever it would take uh, to secure independence. Well, Mercy Otis Warren was in that third category, and rather early. Uh, So she was making the case for American liberty uh, before a majority of the American people bought into it. Uh, Many of the meetings of the famous committees of correspondence uh, and the Sons of Liberty were held in her living room in her Massachusetts home. That was a very subversive uh, thing to do. But she advocated for years uh, for women's rights as well as liberty from uh, British tyranny. And uh, uh, when the Constitution was debated later, 
in the late 1780s. She was an outspoken anti-federalist and insisted on uh, some important additions to the early Constitution. So from beginning to end, she was very much involved. Uh, She was ideologically pro-liberty, and it really shouldn't be a surprise to think of Mercy Otis Warren as the conscience of the American Revolution. So I'm wondering if you could give us an example of some of her subversive writing. Yeah, uh, here's something from 1772. This is four years before independence uh, was declared. Uh, She wrote a play, and of course she could not put her name to it. It was published anonymously and performed in places like Boston. It was entitled The Adulateur, and it foretold the coming of the revolution through the words of a very disagreeable and imperious official uh, named Rapatio. Uh, It enjoyed an enthusiastic reception. Uh, One of her biographers points out that she made her debut as the Patriot's secret pen with this uh, famous play in 1772. And she provoked uh, all kinds of laughter and and longing for British, uh, liberation from British rule. The object of that play was the British governor of Massachusetts, a very unpopular man named Thomas Hutchinson. And uh, uh, Mercy Otis Warren in this play really lampooned him. Nice. Well, I, I can appreciate that. Sometimes, sometimes the oh-so-important uh, need a little, uh, how can I put this? They need somebody to pop their balloon and and uh, bring them back down to earth uh, after after well, the war for, an, oh go ahead oh i'm sorry she was an expert in that <laughs> after the war for independence was won i understand she considered or she continued to exert considerable influence um did she have some influence for instance with the uh, constitutional convention of 1787 oh she absolutely did uh she urged the uh convention of 1787 Uh, to adopt uh, extraordinary measures to prevent any new government from straying from the principles of uh, uh, republicanism that were set into motion with American independence. Uh, She published in 1788, in February of that year, a 19-page pamphlet. Keep in mind that the convention was still going on. And in that pamphlet uh, called Observations on the New Constitution and on the Federal and State Conventions, she argued that the Constitution, as it was proposed, and which did not yet have a Bill of Rights, um, must be amended to incorporate a Bill of Rights uh, before it should be ratified by the states. And otherwise, she was uh, very fearful that uh, the new government uh, would violate the rights of both the states and of uh, individuals. Well, her stock just went up another notch if she if she had anti-federalist leanings as far as, you know, we want that that, that secureness of a, of a Bill of Rights. That's good. Absolutely. Yeah, she was uh, uh, one of the leading anti-federalists and she convinced uh, James Madison that a Bill of Rights had to be incorporated into the Constitution, which, of course, ultimately it was. Now, you mentioned that she personally knew a lot of the very pivotal figures of the revolutionary period. Um Tell me about her reaction when John Adams was president and and signed into law a measure that attempted to muzzle press that was critical of him. Yeah. Mercy Otis Warren was a close friend of John Adams and especially his wife, Abigail. And when the president signed uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, which uh, led to the closure of newspapers that were critical of the administration, she saw that as the grossest violation of American liberty. And she said so without reservation. 
her objections uh, did strain her relationship with the president, but they didn't injure her longstanding friendship with his wife, Abigail. Uh, but Warren made it plain that uh, this was wrong. This was uh, a lapse in revolutionary principles that had brought uh, America into being. And in uh, 1800, she supported the ouster of John Adams in the pivotal election that year that saw Thomas Jefferson elected to the White House for his first term. Okay, and that was my next question. So she knew Thomas Jefferson. What did she think of him? And, And I guess also, what did he think of her? They had a great deal of mutual affection. Uh, Jefferson, being an anti-federalist himself, was sympathetic uh, to her uh, position on issue after issue. And when he was president, uh, her last major work was published. It was called History of the Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution. It appeared in 1805, uh, late in Jefferson's uh, first term. And it was the first important history of the period from 1765 through 1789. Jefferson, as president, ordered copies of it, not only for himself, but for every member of his cabinet and expected them to read it. And uh, he no doubt uh, uh, deeply appreciated uh, Warren's ongoing sympathies for very small government and the preservation of individual liberty. Now, Larry, there there are names like Betsy Ross and Abigail Adams and even Martha Washington that uh, that stand out from the the revolutionary period. These are women that, uh, if you were asked name a woman from the revolutionary period, they would they would jump out at you. Are is Mercy Otis Warren memorialized anywhere? Are there statues of her or anything like this? Well, that's a good question. Uh, if there are, they would be probably in Massachusetts, and I have not seen them, so I can't uh, verify that. And she probably isn't as well known as those other names you mentioned, because the others are so deeply associated with uh, very specific uh, events, like sewing the flag, uh, Betsy Ross, and uh, Abigail Adams, uh, who was a prolific letter writer, very articulate. Uh, Warren stands out, though, because her interest was deeply philosophical um, and deeply political and strongly pro-liberty. So, um, you know, that's a little bit harder for a lot of people to grasp than actually uh, sewing the first flag, as Betsy Ross did. But at least we, we uh, we can access her writings today, can't we? Oh, yes, we can. Absolutely. And there are biographies of her. A very good one is by an author named Nancy Rubin Stewart. And it's entitled The Muse of the Revolution, The Secret Pen of Mercy, Otis Warren, and the Founding of a Nation. So I highly recommend uh, that book and anything that you can find, any scraps of uh, her plays uh, or other works that are perhaps available online. Very good. So with that, we will uh, we will take our break. And when we come back, uh, who will be joining you? We have a return guest today, Jim Agresti, from a very great organization called Just Facts. I happen to serve on its board, so I know from the inside that Jim is a good guy and his organization is uh, first rate. back to the Reed Hour. This is Lawrence Reed, your host. I'm with the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, F-E-E dot org. 
And uh, I am on the line here with my producer, Brian Hyde, and our guest for the next three segments, whose name is Jim Agresti. Jim is returning as a guest on The Read Hour. We had him uh, earlier this year. He is the president and co-founder of a fine organization I'm so very proud to serve uh, as a board member for. Uh, it's called Just Facts. Jim has two decades of experience in public policy research and analysis, and Just Facts is a nonprofit research and educational institute dedicated to publishing comprehensive, straightforward, and rigorously documented facts about public policy issues. You should check them out at justfacts.com. Welcome back to The Read Hour, Jim. Larry, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. You're, you're back on due to public demand. People have been screaming for you. They loved your first appearance. So <laughs> it's a great pleasure to have you. Uh, Jim, we have been featuring at fee.org uh, some of your recent articles, which are just terrific. And one in particular really caught my attention, and I would like it to be our uh, principal subject uh, for this interview. It was on public education and it analyzed the education plan put forth recently by Vermont Senator and presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Uh, listeners, by the way, can find that at justfactsdaily.com or on our website, fee.org. Anyway, Sanders says that public education is racially biased and underfunded. Do you think, Jim Agresti, that those are the biggest problems with the school system? And if not... What do you think are the biggest problems? So um, can I just avoid the question and say, I don't care what I think. It's really not that relevant. But the facts show that the evidence he puts forward to make those claims is, gr are, is grossly misleading or completely unhinged for reality. It actually has no basis in anything empirical. So... You know, my view of that is, no, it, this is not the problem. And the facts clearly show that. As far as what is the problem or what are some of the biggest problems, it's very difficult uh, to figure that out just due to the scientific fact that association does not prove causation. Mm -hmm. So just because one thing is associated with another, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's causing the other. But I can say this again from a factual and empirical perspective, that uh, the problems that are associated with our education system are similar throughout, throughout the world in terms of any realm in which uh, there are not market forces at play. And market forces basically are consumers demanding value for their money. And when government gets involved in a major way, as it has in our education system, there's a disconnect between who pays the bills and who makes the choices. And that allows a lot of inefficiencies and unaccountability to seep into the system. And one of the ways that is evident is by looking at the cost in our country for a public school, on average, versus a private school. And public schools are spending about 83% more per student. This is data from the federal government mm -hmm. uh, th than our private schools. Yet people are still willing for the value that private schools supply to pay their taxes, essentially pay for the public schools, and then the private schools on top of that, which ought to tell you something as to who's delivering more value for the money. 
But you know, Jim, uh, uh, the advocates for public schooling over private schooling will be quick to say, uh, but you, uh, this is an apples uh, versus oranges comparison. The public schools are given so many more responsibilities, sometimes by mandates uh, from state legislatures. Uh, and they take on the toughest uh, kids, you know, the toughest problems, whereas private schools tend to attract uh, the cream of the crop. So they don't have the same problems, don't have the same issues. They they kind of start out blessed with uh, a, a, a clientele that uh, is already ahead of the game. How, how would you respond to that? I would say that that is a small fraction of all pi- private schools. Uh, the schools that attract the cream of the crop they, their uh, tuitions are equivalent to like college tuitions, mm-hmm. twenty, thirty, sometimes forty thousand dollars per year. But the small, typical private school, often a Catholic school, or, or something of the sort, they're spending an average of about seven thousand per student per year. Mm-hmm. These are not elite institutions. Uh, many of them, in fact, are uh, packed with racial minorities. Um, Bernie Sanders is a big uh, criticizer of, uh, uh, what's the school? Charter schools. And he says one of the problems is there's just too many racial minorities in these schools. Um, So these are not people that come from typically wealthy backgrounds or or privileged uh, circumstances. These are people oftentimes in inner cities that are in these schools. Yeah, you know, I found exactly that, uh, Jim, about 30 years ago. When uh, with a couple of colleagues in Michigan, we did a uh, survey and a a lot of personal visits to inner city Detroit uh, private schools. And we found some surprising uh, uh, details that uh, we wouldn't have guessed. One was that about three quarters or more of the students going to these private schools in inner city Detroit were not coming from families of the same faith that the school was, Catholic or Lutheran or, or Baptist or whatever, that, which was a sign that the parents were sending them there for other reasons, not uh, for uh, the faith component so much as safety and also uh, good academics. And we found also, to underscore your point, that a lot of the students in those schools had been sort of turned out by the public schools. Uh, their parents told that, hey, you know, we can't do anything for this kid. He's too much of a troublemaker or whatever. And the amazing story was what those private schools were doing with kids that the public schools had essentially given up on. You know, somebody once asked Milton Friedman when discussing this issue, why do you think private schools would be better than government schools? And he responded, I don't think that. What I think is that competition is better than monopoly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well said by Milton. We have a couple minutes left before we uh, go to our first break, Jim. You argue that if there's any resegregation going on in the public schools, that it's not for the reasons that Bernie Sanders suggests. Uh, Can you, in a minute and a half, explain what you mean by that? Sure. His education plan uh, repeatedly blames racism on on the state of inner city schools and the poor academic outcomes of uh, black and Latino students. And he bases this claim on an article in the New York Times, which goes back and cites an article from the UCLA Civil Rights Project. Now, get this. 21 pages deep in that report is this fact that the share of white schools that are very, you know, highly weight, 90% to 100% white students, has declined from 39% in 1988 
to 16% in 2016. In other words, these schools are becoming more and more integrated. And what we're seeing in this country is essentially a, a high level of immigration that is uh, resulting in more students of color populating the schools. So mm -hmm. it's not that uh, white schools are becoming more uh, less integrated. It's just the population is becoming browner, to use the term. And that's all that's going on here. So this nonsense about resegregation is one of these cases where what Sanders says has absolutely no basis in reality. Was that a minute and a half? Uh, yeah, that was very good. We only have about 20, <laughs> 20 seconds left. Well, oh. Jim, uh, we will get back to uh, Sanders and his objections and his education plan after this quick break. We're talking with Jim Agresti, president and co-founder of Just Facts. We'll be back in a moment. Thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are back with the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. We are talking today with my good friend Jim Agresti, who is president and co-founder of Just Facts. You can find their website at justfacts.com. And Jim, you recently wrote an article that we're discussing today about the education plan put forth by Vermont Senator and presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. I'd like to pick up where we left off before the break and ask you, how does U.S. education spending compare to that of other countries in the world? Since Bernie claims that it's underfunded here, uh, we're coming to you for just the facts. Well, thank you for trusting me more than Bernie. I think you made a wise <laughs> choice because his statement that, quote, we are desperately underfunded and we need to spend more money to make our public education system the best in the industrialized world, not one of the poorest, is objectively false. Uh, data from the U.S. Uh, Department of Education shows that our education uh, spending in this country on public schools is fourth in the world among 33 developed nations. On average, we're spending about 30% more per public school student than other developed nations. That is a very high premium, and that's per student. So it's a very large differential. Uh, interestingly, although our 15-year-olds uh, perform very poorly compared to other nations, our fourth graders rank in the top 30% of nations for both reading and math. Mm. And this shows that we're not, they're, they're not lacking in ability. Something is happening in our education system so that by the time they turn the age of 15, they're in the bottom 50% of reading and the bottom 20% for math. 
to go from the top 30% to the bottom 20%. You can't blame the parents. You can't blame, hey, uh, socioeconomic factors. This is a case where there's something happening between those ages uh, that's not related to money that is causing this disparity, this generalized sinking of our students relative to other nations. Yeah, just throwing more money at something is so uncreative, isn't it? And I don't think that there's anything, any problem that Bernie Sanders doesn't favor raising taxes for so that you can have the government throw more money at it. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, what he stands for, just down the line. But when it comes to education, he did call for uh, something else as well. He wants a ban on for-profit charter schools. What's your take on that? So his, uh, his, his position is a little different. He wants to stop additional funding for, for for-profit charter schools, for all charter schools, until some investigation is done. And he does want to eventually ban uh, private uh, for-profit charter schools. Mm-hmm. And he says his argument is that they're not accountable. Mm-hmm. But he, he doesn't want any investigation of uh, traditional public schools. He just he's already made his mind up that we need to throw more money at them. Yes. And, and see, the ironic thing is here, the type of school that's most accountable are the for profit charter schools, because parents have to make the choice to send their kids there. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to willingly say, I prefer this school over the public school in my area. So they're accountable to every parent of every student versus public schools are accountable to whom? Politicians. So who do you really trust with your child's education? Yourself or politicians? Yeah, and and if you think, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say, if you think profit in the public school system on the behalf of uh, the uh, providers of the education or other services, if you think profit is is a bad thing, well, then I suppose we should solve that by what having government collective farms to raise the food uh, that is served to the kids at at lunchtime, uh, raised uh, and harvested by government employees. Uh, I mean, when you think of it, all the things that schools depend on that come from the for-profit private sector. Uh, you know, from pencils to blackboards to desks, you name it. That's not where the crisis is in education. The crisis, the problem is in the nonprofit government provided sector uh, of public education. You're absolutely right. And and again, it's where the least amount of accountability occurs. A a funny aside about Bernie Sanders is that uh, somebody showed him uh, pictures of bread lines or mentioned bread lines in the Soviet Union. And uh, he said, oh, that's a good thing, because (laughs) here uh, there aren't lines, but the poor people starve to death and the rich people get the food. So therefore, you know, it's fairer in that everybody's in a line. Everybody's suffering rather than a situation where almost nobody is suffering. And in fact, in our nation, Hunger is extremely, extremely rare, as opposed to other nations where uh, the food program is socialized, as you're talking about, and there's just a tremendous amount of scarcity and virtually everybody is suffering. 
Yeah, and he also said in the same breath that the very fact that there are or were bread lines in the old Soviet Union was an indication that the government there uh, cared about the people because they took the time to set up the line and, you know, all the details of <laughs> that you had to wait in. I mean, they, they actually took time out from their busy schedules, planning other people's lives uh, to make sure the line was orderly. <laughs> Uh, remarkable. Uh, yeah. And by the way, I, you probably know this, Larry, but he chose uh, for, you know, the romantic uh, time of his honeymoon in his life to, to go to the Soviet Union, you know, during the height of its oppression of, of people. Yeah. Who, who does that? And he, <laughs> communists, I think. But he, he came back with hardly a, a, a negative word about the Soviet system. He just thought that was, you know, uh, the cat's, cat's meow. You know, when he says that he wants eventually to ban uh, for-profit entities involved with charter schools, uh, you know, when I first heard that, I thought, wait a minute. Uh, you know, stopping federal funding is one thing. They can do that if they want. It's within the federal government's uh, right to, to stop uh, what it doesn't want to fund anymore. But isn't the business of who runs charter schools uh, a, a state and local matter? Why is it any business of the federal government to be telling charter schools in the states who they can have uh, manage their operations? Well, you're absolutely correct from a constitutional perspective. The federal government has no right to do that. However, we uh, live in an era where the biblical golden rule gets perverted to be he with the gold makes the rules. Yeah. So what ends up happening is since the federal government is giving states and localities money for education, they can make that a mandatory part of receipt of those funds saying, hey, you don't have to do this, but if you want this money, you'll do it. Now, there's constitutional problems with that, and the court has struck down a similar provision with the Medicare uh, expansion and Obamacare, but uh, you never know which way these things are going to go because the court often is not making decisions based upon the Constitution, but based upon their uh, personal political uh, feelings and, and conjectures. Yeah. In fact, uh, I wish they based uh, more decisions just, just on common sense. Uh, and if they did, they would realize, for instance, that as many people warned when federal aid to education began in the 1960s, that with government shekels, sooner or later come government shackles. And mm -hmm. this is exactly what's being played out right now is uh, that we're talking about. So, OK, sorry, I thought maybe you had a thought on that, uh, Jim. I concur. <laughs> I concur. Okay. <laughs> you can We're on the same page, want, Larry. I, I don't have anything to add. You, you summarized it so excellently. Uh, I thought anything more would, uh, would would take away from it. Well, thanks. But I remember that uh, in the mid-60s, that's, that's when uh, public education in America really began to slide. And it's not by coincidence that that was the time that uh, federal aid to education began when a mandatory collective bargaining was adopted in uh, many states. So you had the rise of uh, very powerful uh, trade unions uh, in the schools, uh, took the place of the old professional associations. You had this concentration of power and money, not in the hands of local school boards and local taxpayers and parents, but increasingly in the hands of, of distant bureaucrats at the state and federal level. Uh, that's what Bernie Sanders ought to be investigating. But, of course, he wants more of that and more money for it. And not only that, 
he's misleading people about it. In fact, he, he states that in America today, most school districts are funded out of local property tax revenue. And, and the truth of the matter is, that used to be the case, but the figure today from the U.S. Department of Education is only 36% of all public school revenues come from local property taxes. And that's an average for all schools. So in well-heeled communities, that, that average is, is much, much higher. But you hey, can imagine it in some of these yep. poor... Yes. Jim, let's pick, let's pick up there after this break. I'm sorry we have to break for a moment, but we'll be back with Jim McGresty in just a moment. Welcome back to the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network with Lawrence Reed. I am your host, and my guest this week is Jim Agresti, president and co-founder of Just Facts. You can see their website at justfacts.com and also articles by Jim on our website, feefee.org. We're talking with Jim today about an art, a plan, rather, uh, that he wrote an article about put forth by Vermont Senator and presidential candidate Bernie Sanders on education. Now, Jim Sanders says that states have made, as he puts it, savage cuts in public education funding. What do the facts show on a per-student basis on that matter? Sure. So on a per-student inflation-adjusted basis, which is the gold standard way of measuring education funding, uh, public students' K-12 education, funding for that has grown by 3.8 times since 1960 and more than 22 times since 1919. We have a chart of this in the article, which you can see on feed.org or justfactsdaily.com, and, and you can see the growth has been dramatic. Now, Sanders focuses on 10 years ago when there, has, when there was a, a post-recession dip because a lot of the states uh, stopped bringing in taxpayer money. They made some cuts to education. And we've almost rebounded 100% since then. Uh, current spending, according to the latest data, which only goes back, which goes back to 2016, 2017 school year, we're 2% below our peak, all-time peak in the history of our nation. So by focusing on this one point, where education dropped one of the rare times in our history and quickly rebounded, uh, Sanders paints a picture that is utterly unrelated to uh, reality. Now, if you look at all the different states, which are also charted out in the article, uh, you can see over the past 10 years, again, at the height of this dip, we had, uh, depending on the state, anywhere from a 16% decrease to a 47% increase but over the last 20 years, in other words, the previous generation, changes have ranged from a 1% decrease to a 114% increase. Mm. So in other words, virtually all the states have maintained or increased their inflation-adjusted education spending per student over the past generation, the vast majority by more than 30%, and some of them more than doubling. And this is on top of multiplicative increases 
over previous generations. And Sanders says uh, the cuts have been savage and is trying to buy your vote by promising to throw more money uh, at public education. Keep in mind, he's from Washington, where uh, all you have to do is reduce the rate of growth in spending. And people like Sanders claim that uh, what you've got is uh, savage reductions. So uh, that's that's the Washington disease, I think, uh, showing itself once again. D.C. is one of those na- uh, one of those areas where um, spending has approximately doubled again on an inflation adjusted per student basis over the last 20 years. It's approximately doubled. Wow. That's adjusted for inflation. That's adjusted for inflation. <laughs> and, and due to the rhetoric of Sanders and, and people like him, uh, many voters have become really misinformed about this issue. Uh, last year, our, our institute, Just Facts, uh, hired a professional uh, firm, an academic firm, to conduct a scientific survey of the electorate. And we found that 57 percent of voters uh, think that public schools spend an average of less than $150,000 per classroom per year. The actual figure is, get this, $332,000 per classroom per year. I want oh, you to think about that. More than twice That's, what the public thinks. Yes. And, and just think about how much money that is to run a classroom of students. I mean, you'd think these kids would be getting served caviar and, and getting back massages every day when they come in. I mean, that's a lot of money. Well, in places like uh, Washington, where real spending after adjustments for inflation has doubled, have we seen a doubling of student uh, outcomes, uh, performance, uh, <laughs> test scores? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, th- there's this disconnect between the consumer and the people who pay the bills, such that the consumer would never spend this kind of money for this kind of service. Wow. Now, when he unveiled his plan, uh, Jim, uh, Senator Sanders said that the quality of education shouldn't depend on your zip code. And now that would suggest that he would favor more school choice. Uh, But he doesn't, does he? No, he does not. Uh, He's very much an opponent of it. Uh, And what that does is essentially perpetrate the status quo, because what Sanders will say is, oh, these inner city schools are suffering from a lack of funding. But that's not true. It's not been true for almost half a century since the early 1970s. The Department of Education and various think tanks of all ideological stripes have shown that the funding per student in schools with uh, large percentages of uh, minority populations is the same as those with large percentages of white populations. Mm -hmm. So this is not a case of some schools being underfunded. It's a case of schools not using that funding effectively. We'll often hear, oh, the the textbooks are old and they're decrepit and we need more money for textbooks. I was watching a, a TV show, a drama that was making this case recently. Why do they need more money for textbooks when they're spending $330,000 per classroom? Yeah, yeah. So when he says that the quality of education shouldn't depend on your zip code, he's not saying we're going to empower parents to shop around as consumers and go to the school where they think is best for their kids. What he's saying is you stay put 
in the government school to which you've been assigned, and I will tax somebody to get more money and just throw at uh, those who are providing you that monopoly education. How uncreative, if not downright stupid, that is. And, and how long has it been tried and done? And again, look at, look at Washington, D.C., where uh, public funding has doubled over the last 20 years. What are we seeing here? I mean, th yeah. those schools are among the best funded in our nation. Are they producing the best students in our nation? I don't think Bernie understands basic incentives. I mean, when you have a poorly performing service and then you throw twice as much money at it, you usually don't get better service. You just get uh, a reward to those uh, who are underperforming. As a wise man once said, if you're heading down the wrong road, speeding up isn't going to help. Yep. <laughs> now, Sanders says, uh, Jim, that school children in America in vast numbers go hungry each day. He, in fact, he actually said that one in six, those are his words, mm -hmm. one in six of American uh, public school children are hunger victims. How accurate is that? I hear this false statistic all the time, and not just from Sanders. I see it in the media. I see it on billboards. And this is the truth of the matter. The latest data from the U.S. Department of Education shows that less than one-fifth of one percent of households with children have even a single child who experiences hunger on an average day. This false statistic uh, Sanders is using is something called food insecurity, which basically means that somebody answered a survey and said, yes, yeah, sometimes I worry about not having enough money to, to buy the food I want. Well, guess what? Welcome to the world of having a budget. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is what progressives like uh, Sanders do all the time. If there's a problem, their one solution for it is more government. If there isn't a problem, they'll manufacture one. And the answer to that is more government in one form or another. It's just like a broken record. You know, by the way, right now in the United States, 39% of U.S. students receive federally subsidized free or reduced price lunches. Each school day, 39%. Yet Sanders is saying they're starving. <laughs> wow. Uh, Jim Agresti, you have been, once again, a terrific guest. Your answers uh, remind me of why I tell people that your website, justfacts.com, is one they shouldn't miss. Uh, if For any listener who wants uh, facts and figures, uh, the uh, ammunition to, uh, to win a debate, uh, fully sourced, fully documented, this is the place to go, justfacts.com. And I can't thank you enough, Jim, for all the good work you're doing and proud to be on the board of Just Facts that you have led from the very inception. Larry, thank you for your kind words and for having me on your show. It was a great time. We've been talking with Jim Agresti, the president and co-founder of Just Facts. Jim has decades of experience in public policy research, and it shows. Visit JustFacts.com uh, to learn more about the topic we've discussed today, education, and a host of other subjects that Just Facts uh, has focused on in recent uh, months and years. Thanks again, Jim. Thank you, Brian, producer, uh, for this uh, new edition of the Read Hour. And we'll be back next week with another one.
timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 